Hello, and welcome to The Global Current. My name is Krista McGuire, and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm excited to be joined now by Aviva Rosenthal, who is the Director of the Office of International Relations at the Smithsonian Institute. Director Rosenthal, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Kristen, for having me. This is really exciting. I'm glad to be on the Global Current. And it's exciting for me also because, as you probably will note, I got to speak to a bunch of Seton Hall International Relations students, and they asked probably the best questions I've ever received. So it's exciting for me to be able to talk to more students. I'm so glad to hear that. Now, I'm already familiar with yourself and your work, but for our listeners who are not, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself to start off? Absolutely. So as you said, I'm Aviva Rosenthal, and I I view myself as having one of the luckiest careers in Washington. So I will say that. I realize what I'm about to say. I feel very, I have a lot of gratitude for my career. But my career started as I think I, I told all of you, you know, I graduated with an international relations degree. And I came to Washington with nothing, no job, no internship. And I said, I want to get paid to travel the world and I want every day to be different. And I've been I've been lucky enough to have that kind of a career. But I did start out really in a very in a very lucky way. I had a first job, but it led me immediately to joining a presidential campaign. And politics was also something that was quite interesting to me, as well as obviously international relations and how those two intersect. So I really did start my career at some of the highest levels and started out working on the President Clinton campaign, the second campaign, and ended up then in the White House as a scheduler for the president, which is one of the most unique jobs and and one that is quite global and really does put you at the center of how foreign policy works. So I sort of cut my teeth in the White House, but I've had some other interesting kind of notes in my career at the State Department as the Chief of Staff to the Undersecretary of Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs and of course my years here at the Smithsonian, which we'll talk more about. So did some other things in between, but I feel like those are kind of the international relations highlights I'm sure we'll talk about today. Absolutely. And you just sort of alluded to it right there about some of the unique and diverse experiences that you've had throughout your career. Do you think that those prior positions that you've held have helped you in your current role now at the Smithsonian? And if so, can you give us a few examples of that? Well, absolutely. I look back, especially at my President Clinton years and really campaign years as the most formative, important formative experiences of my career. So everything I learned then I have used in every position that I've ever had and will continue to use. And and some of those things are basic, but boy, did I learn them in a very real way. You know, one life skill that I really learned doing advanced work is the phrase never take no for an answer. And I teach my children this phrase to my own demise when they use it against me. But that concept that you really can't take no for an answer is a great life skill because I do this almost every day. It's not about not accepting no. It's about trying to understand, well, what is going to turn no to yes? And that could be in a foreign policy. It could be in a negotiation. It could be dealing with people. It could be how to launch big initiatives. You have to look at every person and say, well, what's in it for them? How how am I going to offer them something they need in their job? How am I going to convince them that my idea has merit and legs? And and you've got to look for different reasons for to every person or to every entity. And that has been a really, really serious life skill that I put to the test every single day. I also really learned, you know, it's all about collaboration. You know, it's you really have to work with others and that to be successful, it's a team, it's a team sport. And to have that humility 
especially again on that campaign, when you represented the White House, you actually needed to be behind the scenes. You know, you wanted to leave the local communities that you touched feeling that they were the ones that did it, that they were the ones that were going to walk away with the success after a president came through town. It wasn't about you. It was about them. And that was a real, you know, watching that play out. I like being behind the scenes. I like being able, I always call myself a proud generalist. Um, and I, to me, that means I know a lot, a little about a lot of things. And there is merit to being an expert. I certainly work every single day at the Smithsonian with 500 PhD experts. But for me, I'm able to take more of the skills that I've picked up along the way and apply them to a whole lot of different types of themes and issues and problems. Yeah, those are some, some really great points, some really great lessons, I think. I want to shift focus now and talk specifically about your office's work as part of the Smithsonian Institution. The Office of International Relations was created in 1988 and has continuously evolved throughout the years. Today, it works on all seven continents and over 140 countries. So can you just start off by telling us, you know, what is the mission of the Office of International Relations and what are the major goals that you hope to achieve? Well, first, the mission of the Office of International Relations is the mission of the Smithsonian. And the Smithsonian, thankfully, has only had one mission, which is called the increase and diffusion of knowledge. So while it is one mission, that is quite a, a large mission. But I would say what we do is not unique. It is that mission. So it is everything. I, I call it sort of the incoming and the outgoing. It is everything from working with, you know, representing the Smithsonian on the world stage. And that is for dignitaries and diplomats. And we'll get into who those are exactly as they come to the United States. We are the national museums, of the United States of America, that we play a big role. But also, how do we tell that American story abroad? And how do we tell not just the American story, but how we are connected to all the other countries around the world? What are those values we share? What are those histories we share? And so, my job is to be able to make those connections, and that is representing all of our 19 museums, our nine research global research centers, so it's everything from science, art, history, culture, education, and really internally being a connector, I make sure that I understand what everyone's international aspirations are around the institution and connect dots and connect people. We have over 6,000 employees, but it's my job to practically know what all of them are doing and really make sure that people are 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 working at leveraging i would say their work together for the greater good and then on the outside again representing the smithsonian to foreign governments and bilateral and multilateral institutions especially on themes that are really those global themes climate change cultural rescue so many things that sort of rise to that global level uh, we kind of coordinate and help make sure our leadership is really speaking to those issues Thank you. And you just mentioned, you know, in your introduction about collaboration, how you work with various organizations, both domestically and globally. For example, you partner with the U.S. State Department. You work with various foreign embassies. What types of assistance do you provide to these organizations and embassies and, you know, other institutions? And why do you think that the Office of International Relations role is so important in these dealings? Well, it's a great question. And it's why I love our, the work of our office, because we do so many different things. So I'll give you some examples. You know, when we work with the diplomatic corps, so those foreign embassies here in Washington, those are great relationships to have, obviously. And, you know, again, we're working on things of mutual interest. But, I'll, you know, as an example, 
those embassies in the United States, their goal is their own version of public diplomacy. They want to tell their story to the American audience. So a lot of those relationships are built on things like it's the 100th anniversary of diplomatic relations between name your country and the United States. And how do we put that into context and how do we celebrate that? So that would be an example of things we do with embassies. I'll, I'll give you uh, just one example. We actually coordinated this with both the embassy and the U.S. embassy in Thailand, as an example. They were celebrating the 200th uh, anniversary of diplomatic relations. And that one's unique because it goes back pretty far. And we learned as part of the exploration of that relationship that actually we had Thai objects in our collections that date back to the Abraham Lincoln days. And actually one of them is we pulled it out of our of our vault literally was labeled number 100. So think about we have over 50 million, you know, million objects in our collection and number 100 was from Thailand. So we're able to tell these stories of diplomatic relations. So that that's one example, but we work with ministries of science, ministries of education, ministries of culture around the world. And again, in that role of as the United States, we don't have a ministry of culture. And of course, we are not we are not going to claim to be that, but in some ways we act as that, again, as the national museums. And so a lot of those relationship building that we do are with these ministries and, and ministers who come through town. And, and we want to make sure that we are a trusted partner and we're able um, to work together on various types of projects. We also do, you know, the, the regular work of building MOUs, as I like to call them, memorandums of understanding. Those are creating more tangible relationships that that last a long time between the Smithsonian and a foreign government, let's say, or a national museum. I do view our role as the builder of relationships. That's ultimately what I view international relations in the cultural context to be. You're building longstanding relationships based on trust that are not just one-offs, but that can go on for years to come. One of the things that really stood out to me in that answer was you talked about culture. You know, we don't have a ministry of culture, but you talked about the importance of that. And I think that's a great segue because one of the types of projects that your office deals with is cultural heritage preservation in places like Armenia and Iraq. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that work is particularly important? Well, we could spend an entire hour just unpacking that topic because it's so it's so important. And, you know, Culture, I mean, and, and this is an interesting topic because we don't have that Ministry of Culture. And that doesn't mean culture is not important. It just means that, you know, our Congress looks at different ways that what does culture mean and how can we have how can we achieve those goals? So I will say for us, there's sort of the thought leadership level and then there's the actionable level. So at the thought leadership level, you know, culture is what binds people together. It is what makes us human. I mean, there is just nothing more important than working around art and, and history and culture. And, and we all know that to be true. I always like to use the obvious analogy where if your house is burning down, what do you run in to save? Well, everyone's answer anywhere in the world is the same answer every single time. Obviously, if you've got your people and your dogs and your cats out, but what do you save? You save your photo albums. You save that vase that your grandmother gave you. I mean, you save the important things that are your family's history and memory, period. That is the only stuff you take out. Well, think about that on a, on a, on a level of a country. And when you look at somewhere like Iraq or many places around the world, 
that culture is being destroyed on purpose in many ways, where it's being destroyed by war. And when you lose touch with what your history and what makes your unique story, you really actually lose your sense of self. And, and, and that plays into international relations and how governments then kind of take advantage of that open space of people don't remember who they are. So it is it is a touchstone for the world, but it's also a touchstone for cultures. And so Again, on that on that thought leadership level, that's how you do peace building. That's how you do reconciliation. These are not small things that you use culture. It's what people remember. You, you know, people people remember when other countries step in to save their culture. We have long history of, of helping the Haitians after now two earthquakes. That's what they remember because we we show them that we see them, you know, that we really are being seen by what's important to them, which is their art and their culture. So. There's some some real benefits to focusing on this on a tactical level, though. How do we actually do that? You know, we do a lot of what we call capacity building. That's a lot of training on how to protect cultural heritage at risk. That's a lot of our work in Iraq. But Armenia would be a very different example. That is also where the reason working in the cultural sector is so important is that's also how we do economic recovery. That is an economic benefit. And you know, cultural tourism is a huge driver of of economies other than outside of agriculture. It's typically the number one economic driver of a country. And most people go to other countries for both natural beauty, but also cultural beauty. They want to visit those sites and you have to keep those sites alive and protected. And so there's so many different things that we're able to achieve, but it's again, it's a partnership. It's not the Smithsonian saying, oh, we're going to parachute into some country and tell you how to do it. It is about listening, working together, learning from each other and sharing those best practices. And that's part of that capacity building that we do um, in many places around the world that we hope to sustain for many years so that we really do build those relationships for the long haul. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think I agree. I believe that it's it's incredibly important work, especially in places that, you know, have been ravaged by terrorism and war. And you mentioned Haiti and its its dealings with natural disasters, earthquakes. And that's something that has been, you know, worsened. And we've felt this. This is a very universal experience by climate change. And, you know, you mentioned how you tackle global issues, that you try to foster collaboration globally. And I think that climate change is a great example of an area that really needs this sort of collaboration. And so I wanted to ask you specifically about that. Can you talk about the Smithsonian's role? Obviously, you're very prominent in the field of scientific research. Can you talk a little bit about how you've been involved in that field regarding climate change and as well as steps that the Smithsonian has taken internally towards a more sustainable future? Well, as you noted, climate change is not even just a topic that you talk about. It's everything. It it imbues everything, art, history, culture, science, and people. And so it is hard to almost unpack it. And so what I could say is this on, on the, as you said, on the science and research side, what a lot of people don't know about the Smithsonian is that we really are almost like a, like a university research arm. We have been researching and doing basic science data collection for on, honestly hundreds of years. And that puts us in a unique position, especially with climate change that our data is decades and decades, and in some cases over 100 years old. And so, you know, part of what the Smithsonian deeply cares about is, is really that focus on basic science. We're not here to pass judgments or, or to try to influence uh, what people believe. We're here to present the facts. And so, 
you know, that is basic science, which can sometimes be uh, not as sexy, but is so important. I'll give you an example. We have a, a program called Forest Geo, and that that takes the temperature of forest plots, 73 of them all over the world. I mean, so climate change is obviously global. There's no such thing as American climate change or Brazilian climate change. So it's it's a global question. And these plots are studied every literally every sprig of grass to every tree are measured every single year by a team of local people, especially citizen scientists. And they do this every year and they record absolutely everything. And you can say, well, that sounds really great, but that who cares? Well, after 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, guess what? That data starts to tell you something. And then when you look back, and this is the magic of the Smithsonian, when you compare that also to deep time records, you know, I think one of our successes in climate change is being able to really take that temperature of the planet and go backwards millions of years and look for those sort of clues to what has happened in the past and what, how are we going to then predict the future? And so we're kind, we're trying to do that on many levels, but we've been doing that. And I think that's really important for us. I also think from a climate change and just also in, in science, one of our strengths is being this neutral trusted party. And that gives us a really big role in con- as a convener. You know, many times we convene lots of different, whether that be the government, private sector, academics, and work together on a particular problem. In some cases, that's data sharing. In other cases, it's it's obviously very more specific to climate change. But that is a unique position of the of the Smithsonian, where if a government alone was trying to do it, it, it might not work. But because we are that trusted kind of quasi-federal entity, we're able to sort of have, I think, being a real powerful position to have conversations that really others just cannot do. I think you asked a great question about the Smithsonian itself because we can't just talk about it to others. We actually have to walk the walk as everyone does. And I think sometimes even we forget that we are this huge physical entity. We have 19 physical museums and zoos and research centers and 6,000 people. And we see on a non-COVID year over 30 million visitors. So we that's a pretty big number. And we have a responsibility then both how do we build our buildings better? How do we get rid of things like even single-use plastics and the straws we got rid of a long time ago? But we got to go really deep. And that that is a we are working on infrastructure, you know, how to change our infrastructure. There was a big article recently in the New York Times about how just the Smithsonian, its physical place in the in Washington. And it is predicted that we will be underwater and, and flooding is already starting. And so these are big questions. We have to move to protect the objects that we care for as the Smithsonian. Climate change is very real. It is literally flooding our, our objects. We have to move them and build new facilities. So these are questions that we're tackling in both, again, a real way and as, our, as a responsibility. And as these national museums that we are, we have to be a leader in this and show other people that we are putting our money where our mouth is. Absolutely. And just sort of sticking with the theme of these universal experiences, um, you mentioned COVID-19 and coronavirus, this pandemic that we've been in for nearly about two years now, has obviously been felt all over the globe. It's devastating effects. And I'm sure just as, you know, every everywhere else that this has had a really big impact on your work. Can you talk about the effect that coronavirus and this pandemic has had and how you've had to adapt to this pandemic in this changing world? Well, 
I mean, gosh, two years in, it's like you look back and you wish you knew what you what we thought we would have known um, two years ago. But yeah, this has been tough. Museums are physical places. They're places that people go to. So that was the first thing is we had to completely rethink what does it mean to be of service to the public? What is our public role if people can't come to us? Obviously, we closed our museums. Everyone was, you know, work from home. And I think that actually did us a favor for us. It actually pushed an initiative to turn more digital and be more digital first forward. And it sped it up. I mean, I think it just actually in a bizarre way helped force our hand to do what we were going to do anyway. So I am impressed with our ability to have pivoted to how to get our information online and in ways that people need to receive it. And that is actually, again, from an international perspective, that's only made us stronger. It has only given us more windows to reach more people in more places where they are. So that that has been a benefit. I think a big challenge has been for any research institution, a lot of our work is simply has to be hands on. That is, you know, conserving objects is hands on. Doing scientific research is a lot of it is done in labs. And that has been a big challenge for people to have their work be in a physical place that for a long time they weren't able to. So two years in, I think we have a, a way better sense of how people can access their work. I think we've been able to get the people inside that we need. And I think people have been working amazingly well at home. Just from my own personal perspective, I wouldn't have predicted that international work was going to go as well as it has. I really was fearful at the very beginning that so much of the work I do was going to come to a, a screeching halt if we couldn't get on planes and meet people and go to conferences and see things. And I was proven wrong. I mean, I think because it has been global in scale, everyone had to pivot at the same time. And honestly, in some ways, it's going to change the way I view our work going forward. We don't always have to get on planes, to be honest. There are certainly times where that is a priority and has to happen. And and people need to be together and meet each other and understand each other. But we've been able to build and to produce some really successful, deep and meaningful relationships and programs all online. And I don't think we're going to stop. We're, ever, we're, never, we're never going to stop doing that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is... Uh, a challenge that we're all dealing with, and I think we're going to have to continue to adapt. I think it's great to hear that, you know, the Smithsonian is continuing to do their work and continuing these important projects. Some of the things that we've mentioned, like cultural um, heritage preservation, conservation, scientific research, you know, these are all projects that the Smithsonian deals with, and they cover many facets of international relations. Um, But with that being said, You know, I feel like sometimes it's easier for certain aspects to be overshadowed um, or perhaps overlooked at times. And so I want to give you the opportunity now. Is there a particular facet of international relations or international affairs that you want to draw more attention to right now that you want to highlight that you find really interesting? Well, there are so many things. I think, you know, I would say there's a couple things that I maybe I'll touch on here in this conversation. You know, we talk a lot about kind of what we call tangible cultural heritage, the objects themselves, cultural sites. That that makes sense. I think there's a whole world of what we call intangible cultural heritage, which I would also say maybe is misunderstood for its its resonance because it's 
it's smaller, but it is extraordinarily powerful. I mean, on one hand, you can look at disappearing languages as intangible cultural heritage. You know, when people really dig into what does that mean to lose languages, I think they'd be surprised that it's not, again, just about a unique person's culture. It is about lost understanding for the world. I mean, again, one of the obvious ones is when you you when you lose the language of especially tribal cultures that understand every plant for its medicinal use or things like that. Well, once you can't understand or what what that is, well, we then the world has lost some really important information that actually helps all of us. So that that one sticks out as it's not in the news enough. I think what we're losing um, with language. But I'm going to pivot to just something else that's both, again, Culture, because it is so important to to bring people together, it also provides specific skills that, again, are overlooked for their importance. I'm going to talk about a project that is so important at the Smithsonian. It's called the Slave Rex Project, and it's out of our African-American History and Culture Museum. And I mean, just the sense that, again, when you talk about learning history, maybe I'll maybe I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the category of. Learning and understanding history is part of of cultural exchange. You have to understand what has come before you before you can imagine how to how to make the world a better place. You have to understand history, but history is always is alive. And so, the Slave Rich Project was so interesting because to tell the story of the global slave trade, they made a point of going and scuba diving and finding slave wrecks and then taking what they could get from those ships and going deep into records and being able to find those people and their histories and how did it all work and tell stories that you just can't tell by making assumptions. But but by actually pulling those objects out of the sea. And then if you play that out, you would go to the place where, okay, well, you look at the African continent and where the ships left from. Well, how do you then take a group of interested people and say, you know what, we're going to teach you how to scuba dive. We're going to teach you how to do maritime archaeology. We're going to then send you down a path to explore and will lead to people doing research and PhDs. It's their stories to tell. And I this whole this whole other subject then of how do we tell our stories in museums? And this this goes into the decolonization conversation that also it needs more attention. You know, we tell stories from the Western perspective and we need to we are the whole the whole field is changing. But making sure the communities to which these stories came from are part of the research, are part of the conversation, are part of telling those stories. So I, I use the slave racks as a way to cover a lot of that. It should be these stories should be researched by those on the continent. But to do that, there's a lot of skill building that can happen that unlocks someone's entire career potential. So I, I love to look at the work we do and you can just go down a million incredible rabbit holes. This is why museums are sort of endless places to explore because um, there's just so many ways that you can look at it. But I, I get inspired when I think of that kind of work. And I just that's the kind of work that maybe doesn't get as much attention, but is as deeply powerful as anything I've talked about before. I mean, that that's an incredible example. And I think, you know, the most important thing that I heard there was that you're making people interested that this is a very interactive experience as well. You're engaging local communities and you're you're piquing interest not only for, you know, themselves, their their local community, perhaps that have been affected throughout history, but 
you know, that then expands and that has a, a much larger impact. That's that's a really incredible example. Thank you for sharing that. I, I kind of want to pull back now because we've talked about some specific projects and some specific examples. But looking back over your time at the Smithsonian, you know, you've been there since 2013. Is there, if you had to choose, one particular project that you have been most proud of or that you would consider the most memorable to yourself? Um, I know you only want one, but I'm going to give you two. So I'm going to give you a macro one and then we give you a micro That's one. That's fine as well. And I'll go, I'll go quickly. Um, but on the big scale, on the macro level, one of the things I'm most proud of is more recent. I've been at the Smithsonian for a while, but I've been the director of the office for about not even two years. So a year and a half. And so for me, I set out when I became the director to do something very specifically important and was, was told virtually impossible. It was a huge task, which was the Smithsonian has been international since its founding, but has never put in writing, has never had an international strategy of any kind. And so the secretary asked me to develop the first ever international strategic framework for the entire institution. And we did that. And we used that COVID year actually to do all of our research and all of our conversations and put all the data together and put all the thinking together and to actually create a really tactical and, and usable framework guide that all of our museums and research centers can use and created a whole new process by which we finally could get our heads around what we do in the world and what kind of impact we really do have and how we really share that information. So that that's an internal example, but boy, it has been a game changer in making us even more effective and focused as an institution because we can't, no institution in the world can be everywhere all at the same time. And even though we do work in over 100 uh, countries every year, we do want to make sure we're having the right impact and we're listening as well and learning as well as as offering our knowledge. It's a two-way street. So we've really been rethinking that. So I'm pretty proud that we've launched that already within just the course of a year and a half. On a personal note, you know, these projects, they're big, they're small, they come in all different flavors. But for me personally, a couple of years ago, I worked on one in Bosnia and it has stuck with me. And it is one of those things where, again, on a human, this is why you do have to travel, going to a place like Bosnia, which is a country that is still living in a world that is from 25 years ago. They really have not been able to shake the war years there and the aftermath. And it's a very intense place. The people there are really intense and they talk about their war experiences when you meet them. It's it's an interesting thing as a human to walk and meet a new person and they'll immediately tell you where they were during during the Bosnian war and, and where snipers tried to kill them. And they point out to you in the mountains where the snipers were. And so it's it's being in a place of, of of real intensity. And again, you have to understand history to start to understand who you're meeting and, and how it's affected them. But that was a museum project where we were really only on the ground for four days. But our mission there was to review and really work with the National Museum, which I won't go into their whole history, but it's absolutely fascinating history. And we wrote a report. And you could say, wow, that's who cares? You wrote a report. Most reports sit on a shelf. But this is one of those rare moments where you write a report that is really meant to do some good. And you and in our four days spent time. And this is in thanks to our U.S. ambassador there at the time, Maureen Cormack and her team really made it an international priority. It was a, a group of international ambassadors from Austria and different places. And they got together and said, this National Museum is our priority. And this report is going to be what we need 
to follow instructions on actually how to make changes. And it was one of those rare moments where literally every recommendation of the report was then taken, literally, handed out to different embassies, funded by different embassies, executed on. And it is now four years later since that report was written. I'm in touch with the director of the museum, and I he joked that we need a new report because we're almost to the end of all of our recommendations. But very recently, the museum, and I saw it, got to see it on Instagram, one of our recommendations was just a very physical one. It was there was this amazing old boat uh, that was showcased in this gorgeous old museum, but it was in the center of this gorgeous room. And so the room was cut in half by it and it couldn't be used for so many other things. And one of those crazy recommendations was, could you literally hang this boat from the ceiling instead of having it on the ground? And it sounds funny, but it was one of those things where everyone wished it to be hung, but of course, how would anyone figure out or get the money or how would this become a priority? But because it was in our report and literally they were going down the list, four years later, I just watched on Instagram the most incredible visual of all that they had to do to lift this boat off the ground. And now it is hanging and it has been given its due and you can see it all and the work that went into it. And now the whole museum can use that space for a hundred different things. And it practically made me cry because it was like, you know, sometimes you do all this big work, but you lose sight of the fact that you can make a very significant change in a place that will last pretty much forever. And it's it, it's not lost on me that I have that again in my in my incredible job, that ability to do that. So on a personal note, that's one of my favorite uh, moments. But that was very fulfilling to see um, and to see all those recommendations actually get implemented successfully. You talked about, you know, that collaboration that went into making that that project happen and those recommendations, you know, actually coming to life, to fruition. And so I think that kind of brings us back to how you can have a role in greater diplomatic and foreign policy decisions. You know, you are the National Museum of the United States. You're a U.S. organization. Can you talk about how the Office of International Relations can play a bigger role in, you know, broader United States diplomacy and foreign policy with various different countries and different organizations? Absolutely. And, you know, as someone who, again, is a student of international relations and foreign policy and public diplomacy, this is one of my favorite aspects about my particular work. But I say to any students out there interested, this is where it gets really fun and interesting because, Again, a cultural organization, all, a lot of cultural organizations have this opportunity, but for the Smithsonian, we have kind of an, an uber opportunity because we wear, we sit in this very strange place of being quasi-federal, and that is extraordinarily unique. And, and we're not really part of the actual interagency. Inter you know, we, and I say this clearly also for your listeners, we're not, you know, we're not part of the federal government in that sense. We, we can't get tasked by the State Department or the Department of Defense or anyone to do anything. We're independent. But where, where that makes that really interesting is most of our, you know, many of our missions are the same. They overlap where, with public diplomacy goals. So we're really able to be of service to the State Department and federal government because we, we naturally are because we just share those those same goals, but not because we have to be, we choose to be. And one of the things that's really unique about the Smithsonian is in foreign policy, we actually can do things that the State Department and our diplomacy team can't do. Um, we're able to work in countries where our governments 
don't have diplomatic relations. We were working, we've been working in Cuba for decades. We've been working in Myanmar for decades. We've been working in Venezuela for decades. And there are times where we're working when our, we don't have ambassadors and we don't have embassies. And yet the Smithsonian is there because we are mission driven. We're typically there because we're saving species working with scientists on the ground because we're doing academic research with university professors. So we are not, again, political or, or diplomacy to us is about building those relationships for the good of the increase and in diffusion of knowledge, again, which is our mission. So that is interesting because when the diplomacy landscape changes and when we start building those relationships back on a national level, most of the time governments look around and they say, well, who who do we trust or who's been here actually during this time? And we typically get to raise our own hand and say, well, we've been here and we've built that trust and we've been working in this place for a long time. And that is just, again, a very powerful place that that is, um, you know, in the Smithsonian, we don't call it soft power. I mean, these aren't the phrases we use here because, again, we don't view ourselves as doing foreign policy. Uh, we're doing our mission. But it's not lost on anyone to think that this is the success of long-term soft diplomacy and, again, building those positive relationships within our mission and engaging in public diplomacy on a near daily basis whenever whenever we travel. Um, it, it, you know, again, I think to me the definition, and this is for me the definition, quite frankly, of public diplomacy as a as a academic um, cone, less than academic, as, a, as an actual cone of the State Department, is that at its core, it's about building trusted long-term relationships, kind of period, full stop. Um, lots of success and all the other pro programs sort of stem from that fundamental notion that you're building relationships based on on trust and and trying to find shared values. And I feel like we get to play such a big role in that, given our mission. And, you know, that that's a unique, a unique place for the Smithsonian to be. I agree. I think it's certainly a unique position and it gives you, you know, it affords you really great opportunities to do a lot of important work that you've been doing. You know, we're, we're almost at wrap up. So before we conclude, I want to ask one final question. You know, the Global Current is a student podcast. A lot of our listeners are students who are looking to join the field, maybe people who have just gotten their internship or their first job who are really looking to make, you know, a statement or break into the field. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what is your advice for for young people who are looking to get involved in the field of international relations and who want to have a career in this in this space? Well, you know, there's a lot of ways to break in. And, and I think all of them are probably you've heard before, but I'm going to reiterate them because they're all true. I mean, definitely internships to me. I mean, this sounds obvious, but trying to find internships that are so different and especially ones that get you out of your comfort zone and especially for international relations folks, you know, I'll speak as someone who runs a pretty serious internship program and plug out there for anyone who wants to apply to the Office of International Relations internship program through Smithsonian, because now, you know, we used to only hold it in, in D.C. Actually, part of this new world post-COVID order has been helpful on our internship front because we 
we, I think, narrowly viewed it as people who had to be in Washington during the school year or people who had to move to Washington over the summers. Now it, we're doing a great job uh, pivoting to virtual, and that has given us access to students all over not just the country but the world. But I do think when we look for our own interns, especially in international, well, they do have to prove to us that they are curious about the world. And that could be anything from study abroad to just a range of different internships to learning or committing to a language. I will say I see a lot of resumes of people who say they want to do international relations, and then there's just really nothing internationally curious about their um, resumes. So that that seems obvious, um, but important. I'm really interested in, you know, and I said I'm a proud generalist and internet, you know, definitely people showing their areas of expertise is important. But I would argue that if you are in college or in grad school or just graduating in your first job, you know, you shouldn't be an expert in anything. You should be exploring different things. You should try on different hats before you make a decision if you're going to go full bore into one specific area or, you know, get a PhD in something. So I'm I'm interested in people who actually like to be a little bit more general in their thinking of their first jobs. And just really tactically, I think sometimes with students, I can tell when I'm talking to them, you know, there's so much more information out there because obviously it's all online. I'm really interested to see if students are reading really D.C. kind of base foreign policy newsletters. Like I want to know if they're reading, you know, Politico's Global Connections newsletter or Axios like, or Quartz. Like I, I do want to see if people are actually spending their time gathering as much foreign policy, international relations sort of tidbits and understanding as they can. That's something anyone can do. And I, you can tell when people have a pretty good grasp of kind of what the foreign policy landscape is today. I mean, and then finally, just more tactically in terms of jobs, you know, it's, this is a very Washington centric thing to say, but I think it's important. You know, one of the strategies is, is to get yourself in front of the person you respect the most. You know, I think it's a great, it's a great Washington strategy as a, as a student. If you've been reading about people or you see people in the news, no matter who they are, if you say, Oh my God, I would kill to work for that person. Well, then you know what? Go figure out how to do that. And you can, because it's not that hard to actually get in front of someone to be their assistant, to try to intern for them. And in Washington, when you're good, people take you with them. And as they move different positions in and out of government, they tend to take great young people along for the ride. And it's just a D.C. truism. So I I think people have more opportunity to actually instead of just saying, oh, how am I going to get that first job? Zero in on a person whose work you really respect and then try to figure out how to get in front of that person. I've seen it work so many times and it's so many of my even my friends, I can track their careers back to hanging their hat on a really interesting person within the field, and then, of course, becoming an expert in their own right themselves. Um, on behalf of myself and everyone at The Global Current, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's truly been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for tuning into today's episode. For The Global Current, my name is Krista McGuire. Thank you, and have a great day.